All right, the uh, passages for today, John 17, 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in you or in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory, that they, uh, you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And those uh, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So uh, uh, for those of you who weren't here last week, Trey's in the uh, middle of this sermon series on a book I affectionately call Malachi. Uh, and he spent some time last week, I thought it was a great sermon, talking about the Shema. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. So he's going to pick that series back up uh, when he returns from whatever eye doctoring thing he's doing. Uh, and when we finish up with that, we'll jump into Advent. So I thought I'd take this opportunity to reflect on the relationship between the Shema and Christmas. Uh, so uh, I told Beth after listening to Trey that when the kids were babies, I'd uh, even now with Evie, I'd. Uh, you know, cradle them to my mouth and whisper the Shema in their ear uh, before putting them to bed. Because mothers and fathers used to do that in ancient Israel. They'd pick up their babies and whisper in their ear, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. And it was, for them, a, a promise to their children about uh, uh, kind of taking up the inheritance that God had, had, had promised to Israel and therefore to them, and that God uh, essentially had their backs. And uh, you, you all... Uh, know that Beth is Frank, so Beth said, uh, why of all the things from the Bible that you could whisper in a kid's ear, would you pick that one? And it's a fair point. There are certainly other biblical promises that you could whisper in your kid's ear. But it, the, 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 it suggests a bigger question, which is this. Can a, can a Christian in good faith pray the Shema? Should we proclaim the oneness of God and of Israel as a promise to our children? And uh, I don't know, I mean, I got to thinking about it, and I guess really there's, there's two questions here. The first one is, what's the point of the Shema? What's the, I don't know, it's a nerdy way of putting it. What is the problem that the Shema solves? And the, the second one is, uh, does the coming of Jesus erase, revise, or extend the Shema? So why the Shema, and then, uh, you know, what, is, what does Jesus have to do with it? So the first question, what is the problem the Shema solves? Will it root... It's a promise uh, that, you know, essentially through Moses that helped him mediate the relationship between God and the nation of Israel. So, uh, you know, that nations are very complex things. And, uh, you know, Israel wasn't a nation like we think about a nation. You know, this is kind of not, it's before the Treaty of Westphalia. And uh, we don't define a nation in the same way that uh, folks would have thought about collective national identity. The way folks would have thought about of the concept like nation, the, what Israel would have meant when it thought that it was a nation is it would have been this like complex relationship between like, I don't know, there's family lines and there's kind of an ethnic thing built in there and there's kind of a shared experience. But 
Like for the most part, nations would have thought about themselves and defined themselves by who they worshipped. And if you look at the ways that people talk about the other nations that they interact with, they're almost all about their gods and, and, and what their gods are like. So, uh, you know, if you don't define a nation by geographic boundaries or, uh, you know, by a, a coherent and separated system of governance or however it is that we think about nation state, uh, folks in the kind of world into which the Shema was introduced thought about nations as being about uh, a group of people who were united in their worship of a god. And so it was treason to worship another god. Like that, that's the interesting thing to me about the problem of idolatry. It's not just that people were like, your individual sin is uh, in not responding to God. What was dangerous about idolatry, it was also simultaneously an act of betrayal of the nation. If you worshiped uh, something that was not your god, you weren't uh, putting yourself in line with the rest of the folks in Israel, for example. And it's that, that idea, I got to be honest, it's something that, uh, you know, and if you're a literalist, uh, fast forward about 30 seconds. Uh, it's, uh, it's one of the reasons that the Old Testament really bugs me sometimes. Take, so Psalm 135.5, I know the greatness of the Lord, that our Lord is greater than any other God. Or uh, Exodus 18.11, Jethro declares, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, and a Pharaoh has delivered the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods. Now, okay, call me a monotheistic Protestant modernist, but I always kind of cringed at these comparisons between other gods. Because, I don't know, I mean, I, I just think, man, other gods don't exist. What's the point of the comparison? Why, why, why would we say that God is better, Yahweh is better than the other gods unless we implicitly believe that those other gods also exist? But, you know, what, what Jethro's saying and what Psalms are saying, the way to make sense of it is that uh, because the tie between the God you worshipped and the identity of your nation was so uh, important, uh, they weren't necessarily, although there's a debate about this, uh, admitting the existence of other gods. But what, what they were doing is they were saying, uh, our God and our nation are amazing because our God is great and the, the concept or idea that you worship is, is messed up. I mean, but, you know, so here's the thing. Like, let's put all those ideas together. So uh, you were and uh, who you were and where you belonged were based on the God that you worship. That's why idolatry is such a big deal. Nations that kind of distinguish between themselves on the basis of all the messed up things that the other uh, God, nation's God represented. And one of the kind of key insights of monotheism, like, you know, thinking about it in a history of ideas type way, which I know is not always directly friendly behind the pulpit, but what's kind of amazing about monotheism as an insight, well, think back, Trey had this series a while back about the plagues, you remember that? And the basic idea was uh, the plagues are examples of things getting out of balance. It was, uh, it, they, they were upsetting the natural order of the universe. Um, and the, the idea he talked about there was this Egyptian, Egyptian idea, idea of ma'at. So, uh, you know, ma'at was this idea that things should be balanced. And polytheistic folks, folks who their identity and morality was tied up with having lots of different gods, they always have this kind of weird problem that they have to solve. And that's that, like, there's all these different gods and different gods have different interests and different gods do different kinds of things. And you read Egyptian or Greek stories, and it's like the different gods with their different interests are fighting. And the question is, how do you decide what god is right? How do you decide what you should do in any given instance if all the different gods 
do different things. And so, you know, the Egyptians had this idea called ma'at. It was like balance. Or the Greeks had this idea uh, that was kind of a, a vision of justice between the gods. But, you know, look, the deal is that if you're a polytheist, it's really difficult to figure out what you should do. It's really difficult to figure out who you are. Because essentially, you'd have a tie with one god, and you're like, I worship X god, and that god tells me what to do. But that doesn't ever really give you a sense of what exactly it is that you should do in the world, what exactly it is that is the best way to go. Uh, you're just following the opinion of one petty and arbitrary god as opposed to an overarching idea that guides what you should do. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult thing, uh, because... If you extend this idea of you know, uh, polytheism having uh, this really difficult time in figuring out what to do, you get into all these different weird kind of contradictions. Like, I don't know, for example, if you believe in the Greek idea of moderation or the Egyptian idea of balance, you come up with all these really unsavory conclusions. Like, for example, should we have a balance between sickness and death? Like, there's a, there's a net amount of sickness that we need in the world in order for it to be balance? Should we, uh, should we commit to the moderate pursuit of greed? Uh, is, uh, is, it, is it okay to give in to violent or lustful impulses as long as you're only doing it half the time? Uh, does our God require that we, I don't know, go out and slay a bunch of people as long as it only takes up a certain part of our calendar year? That's what's so weird about the idea of polytheism. If you think that the God that you worship or the gods that you worship represent different things and you have to pay each of them some kind of homage now and again, you're going to end up thinking some fairly messed up things ethically. And what's awesome about monotheism, what's awesome about what God reveals to Moses and to Israel is that the oneness of God means that there are ultimate values that orient and sustain the nation. So for example, God is love, God argues for peace, God argues for compassion. God believes in justice. We pursue those four things, and we don't have to balance them with their opposite. It's not like we're like, oh, this Yahweh God, he really likes justice and peace and compassion, but then there's this other evil God that we have to pay some homage to. The idea that's so awesome uh, built into not only the roots of Christianity, but even the roots of monotheism is that there's God who believes things that we are ultimately sold out for, love, peace, compassion, and justice, and we can define what we're going to do as being not only right or ethical because we're doing what Yahweh wants and Yahweh really wants what's good. That's the thing is that one God implies that there's one identity for God's people around values that we can't or shouldn't compromise. That's the point of the Shema. To hear the oneness of God is to call for a single standard of goodness. It's to be sold out for and committed to what is right without compromise. That's the problem the Shema solves. The Shema is a way of telling the people of Israel who they are and what they should do. One God, one nation, one people whose hearts are oriented around one goal. That goal is to live in loving relationship to God with one another in the world. If you remember the piece of Malachi that Trey talked about last week, what was it about? It was about unfaithfulness. The, the men had become unfaithful uh, and why? Because they have taken up with foreign women. And the women have become unfaithful. Why? Because they're not following the directive of the men. That's not just about question of like marital ethics. What's that about? What that's about is the idea that uh, the Israelites had entered into these relationships that were diluting the, uh, I don't know, the purity and the focus of Israel. That what 
God required Israel to be one, and therefore the people of Israel had to be one. And what being one meant to them was that they needed to, in every aspect of their life, their ethics, their families, their religion, everything, put God first and uh, you know, uh, unite the nation together behind this idea of one God. Because God is one, the nation is one in heart, intention, and purpose, and yada, yada, yada. So it sounds, it sounds great you know, as a, as, a, as a focus, but when you really start to think about it, there's significant limitations to the Shema. There's, there's some things that are fairly messed up about it, so just, I don't know, off the top of my head. The Shema represents a God who is not truly universal. Like that God belongs to Israel, Israel belongs to that God, but God is envisioned in the Shema is just the God of Israel, and Israel is, are, are just the people of that God. And in fact, uh, when people make comparisons between Yahweh and other gods, and they say that Yahweh is uh, better than the other gods, there is this sense that other people have other gods and their uh, worship of and a possession by another god is just kind of part of the order of the world. So the god of the Shema is a god with limited power. And the uniqueness of the Shema to Israel, same kind of thing, right? Like, uh, Israel has an obligation to love and respond to God. God has an obligation to love and respond to Israel. But at least in the kind of bounds of the Shema, that God doesn't have an obligation to people outside of Israel. And people outside of Israel don't have an obligation to that God. And that's why this weird thing of comparing gods happens all the time in the Old Testament. And then two in the Shema, the other really kind of weird thing is that, so Israel is one, God is one, But Israel's oneness and God's oneness are totally separate. That's the weird thing. God is one and Israel is one. But God is one because God is different from Israel. So God is obligated uh, to Israel and Israel's obligated to return God's love with the love and obedience of their own. But God here is envisioned as utterly distinct from Israel. And in fact, there's a sacred boundary between the nation and its deity. And I mean that in the like formal sense of sacred and holy, that God is radically different from us and separated from Israel. And in a weird way, God is divorced from the world in this formulation. God cares about the world and has obligations to it, but is outside of it. So the shame has got this weird problem. It's like, just about this God who is for Israel, who is not sovereign in the same way as other gods and who is not necessarily connected to Israel in the way that we might imagine. And if you start to think about it that way, like, isn't there something that strikes you as it it would be weird for a Christian to pray the Shema? Because it would be about a God that is just tied to Israel, a God that is uh, limited in in that God's authority and a God who has uh, divorce from the world to a certain extent. And I don't know, if you whisper the Shema in your baby's ears, perhaps you're giving them an overly limited view of uh, what it means to be a Christian and what it means to say that there is a God who is sovereign. Beth's got a point. So that question two, does Jesus erase or extend the Shema or revise it? Or what does Jesus do with it? So on the face of it, for reasons I've already suggested, it would seem like Jesus really messes the Shema up. And in fact, You could argue that uh, Jesus creates a problem for every word of it. So hear, O Israel, for starters, Jesus in the New Testament more broadly are pretty clear that your obligation is more than just to hear. So uh, the idea that the sham is primarily around hearing the character of God is kind of messed up by Jesus, who says we need to be transformed by it. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. Uh, You know, not so fast, Israel. Things could get really sticky 
with the, our part, if it refers exclusively to Israel, I mean, yes, the Lord is the God of Israel, but the Lord is God of uh, other people in the world. The Lord is the God of the universe. And so one of the things that Jesus does is he messes up the kind of uniqueness of the Shema, that that's something that is about a relationship between God and between Israel. And then the kicker is the Lord is one. Okay, like, anybody see a problem with that? I mean, yeah, right? That, that's the thing is like, the Lord is not just one, but in the New Testament tradition, the Lord is also two and also three. Two natures and one person in the case of Jesus, who is different from the Father. Three because of three distinct persons in the Trinity. So like whatever or whoever it is that we are to love with all our heart and all our soul and all our might does not seem like uh, someone who is in line with the entity imagined in the Shema. But despite that, the New Testament is like awash with direct and indirect references to the Shema. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul develops it. There's one God, Father, for whom uh, and through whom all we exist. He does the same thing with the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 4. There is one body and one spirit. We are called to one hope that belongs to their call. And like, I don't know, I mean, as we approach the Advent season, uh, not only uh, does the New Testament extend the Shema in saying that all the members of the Trinity are part of that one God, but I don't know if there's one theme that's been awfully big at resurrection for a long time besides ancient Middle Eastern agricultural practices and, and maybe coinage. It's that we love the idea that there's a new Israel and that the, what Jesus does is extends the idea of Israel such that it applies to the entire world. And over and over and over, like the root of Jesse, the cornerstone that was rejected, that be, or the stone that was rejected, that becomes the cornerstone, the idea of a vine and branches and grafting, like a huge part of the New Testament is to argue that, uh, you know, we're all grafted into Israel and that God is, is one in a way that the Shema didn't understand. So it seems like a really difficult issue to resolve. Luckily, Jesus is pretty good. And uh, Jesus resolves it here in this prayer. In John, so if you recall where it happens, it's uh, Jesus is uh, is praying what we call the high priestly prayer, and one of the things that commentators on John point out is it kind of comes at the end of this big sermon, and uh, Jesus is it's kind of immediately after the foot washing, and Jesus is invoking the office of uh, of both a priest and a king. So he's talking about and he's offering prayers for holiness and for glory, but he's also kind of playing the kingly role. Of, uh, of prayers that are about God's sovereignty and God's direction. So Jesus prays this beautiful prayer, and uh, he starts talking over and over and over about what it means to be one and about oneness, and, and he's connecting it explicitly to the tradition of Israel, so much so that a lot of folks think about this as Jesus' kind of interpretation of the Shema that's built into this prayer. Now, what's interesting here. If you go back and you read the stuff before it, it's Jesus' prayer as a very specific order. Okay, first, he play, prays that he can be made one with the Father. So Jesus says that he, he wants to take on the mission that the Father gives him and the identity of the Father, and then that he wants to point out the glory that he gets from the Father. And then second, he prays for the disciples. And he says, the disciples will see that love and that glory and be transformed so that 
they might know uh, that I came from you. And finally, in the part we're looking at right now, he prays for the whole church. He prays for uh, everyone beyond uh, the, the group of the disciples. And what he does, what's so beautiful about this prayer, is that each step, he's saying the closeness with God that a group has, that Jesus has with the Father, that the disciples have with Jesus, or that believers have with the disciples, that closeness becomes, and here's the beautiful thing, a new kind of oneness. That there's a new understanding of oneness that is built in to uh, the relationship between Jesus and God, between the disciples and Jesus, and between the church and the disciples. So he says, I do not ask for these disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. What is, what is this oneness about? What is, the one, what is the oneness in the Shema? The oneness of the Shema is that we've got one God and that God has one basic intention towards or opinion towards the world, unlike the Egyptians or whoever else. The oneness of that God is that that God is unified in, uh, in, in intention and in execution. But here, Jesus is talking about a different, different oneness. This oneness is not about hearing God. It's not about reinforcing Israel's national identity. This is a oneness in action. It's as if there's this kind of chain of oneness and love. That's what's beautiful about it. The father loves the son. The son loves the father. The son loves the disciples. The disciples love the son. And therefore, the group of the father, the son, the disciples, all of them, they love the church. They love believers. And as believers come to love all of them, they are made together one, that we are made one in love of God. And each person, by loving God and by showing love, grafts everybody into this chain. The way we're grafted into Israel is not because someone writes us a passport or a certificate that says, hey, you're now a member of the nation of Israel entitled to all the promises that were extended to you. Instead, we are grafted into Israel and we are made members of Israel by adoption, by God's love for us and our love for God. And it's so much, uh, it's so, so radically the case that Jesus is careful in this prayer to say, all, uh, most of the significant qualities that I receive from the Father, believers and disciples receive from me. Remember a couple of years ago when I did the uh, Christmas sermon on, or the Advent sermon on the shepherds, and there was this talk about glory. And glory was kind of the substance or the, uh, the, uh, the, the kind of way, way that God had certain qualities or characteristics. We talked about glory as being the godness of God, that glory was about someone uh, mirroring and reflecting and extending, uh, extending who exactly God is. And if you recall, Jesus is reflective in that Advent uh, prayer of, of, of reflecting the glory of God and the glory of God the Father. Here in John, Jesus says, the glory that you have given me, referring from the Father to the Son, the, 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 the characteristics that you have vested in me as a result of me being your Son, I have given given to them that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. There's this idea that the oneness is not just about being united 
in action or united in love, that in oneness we share in the very character and glory of God the Father. We share in the very character and glory of the triune God, that the Son is able to be one with the Father by virtue of sharing that glory and by proxy, we are able to be united with the Son and therefore reconciled to the Father because we become perfectly one in this action. And the Greek there is beautiful, teleomenoi eishen, which essentially means perfected in unity, that our unity with God is made so perfect that by virtue of grace, we are made nearly indistinguishable in substance and glory from the character of God. Jesus continues the prayer, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. God has given us to the Son. The Son has given us back to the Father uh, who we are and what constitutes us, both in terms of glory and love, is, uh, is, is assured us. But the thing that, really, this was one of those places where I think, I don't know, you should pause for a moment and think about the implication of the argument if you play it out, not just for theological reasons, but for reasons that relate to who we are at the core of our being and what it is that makes us feel comfortable and at home and loved by God. The point that Jesus is making here is that because we are given to God and he is given to us because God's love is given to us and we are given to God in love and because God loved Jesus from the foundation of the world, then you too have been loved by the triune God from the foundation of the universe. And to me, that's hugely powerful that before anything existed, God envisioned and knew and had intentions for and loved you prior to even your coming into existence, that you are as a result of God's love and the sharing of God's glory and the gifting of the Son to us and us to the Father, that we are united in a way that's so much more profound than having a single relationship or single identity bound up with a nation, that there is this beautiful chain of oneness and love and oneness and purpose and oneness and glory and oneness and gifting and being given that even entails a kind of unity and knowledge. The next thing Jesus says is, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You have not just been loved from the foundation of the world. You have not just been uh, given from the foundation of the world to a loving God, but you are remade in that God so that you can know and fully identify with and be transformed by the presence of the Father who is present in Jesus Christ, who is given to you and us to them. This is what Jesus means by a new kind of oneness in the Shema. It's not that we just identify with the fact that we're from Israel, is that the whole universe is configured to love you and to make you a recipient of God's glory, to make you a recipient of God's promise. The entire universe is configured so that you can be loved and so that you can know God. That is the purpose and the end and the intention of the universe. And that's the real promise of the Shema. It's why Israeli parents whispered it in their children's ears 
because even without knowing it to say that Israel is one and that we need to love God with all our heart and all our soul and all our might, that promise, even in unfulfilled form, is made and in fact ultimately fulfilled in the person and in the presence of Jesus Christ in love and purpose and unity. What better thing could you whisper in your child's ear than to know that there is a promise that God has grafted you in to not only the nation of Israel, but has made the nation of Israel a metaphor for all human beings, that we are participating in God's glory and God's glory and God's love participate in us because we are united with God through Jesus Christ in love and purpose and knowledge, and therefore we are transformed by him. Therefore, that promise is not just a promise of aspiration. God is making it happen. Remember those gripes I had about the Shema? So, you know, uh, God can't be really sovereign if God's only the God of Israel. Uh, uh, To hear does not mean to be transformed and the God in the Shema is separate from or divorced from the world. Imagine what Jesus is doing here in repraying the Shema. That's what's so radical about Jesus's reinterpretation of the Shema. For the first time, we do not only hear, but we are transformed. We are remade in love. And God is still one, but God's oneness is so much more profound than the folks who whispered it in their baby's ears would have thought about it. It's not just that God is you know, that we're not monotheists and that our nation or polytheists and our nation is organized around Israel. It's not just about the ethical problems of being a polytheist and whispering that in your baby's ear. You're saying that God is one because God and God's people are united in love and purpose and knowledge and that God is transforming us to share in God's glory. And that God, a God that is united with God's people in that way, is truly one and truly and completely sovereign, not just over Israel, but over the world. God is made more fully and more powerfully one because God is made more fully and more powerfully sovereign. And ultimately, here's the thing, the miracle of Christmas, the promise of Christmas, the reason why we can still pray the Shema faithfully is because it affirms that Jesus is God with us, that there is no divorce between Israel or between God, between the Father and between the Son, that they share one in glory and unity and purpose. The Shema is a promise about the coming of Christmas, and Christmas is a reconfiguration of the Shema to demonstrate that what we proclaim is not just the oneness of Israel or the oneness of God, but that we are united in, with God from love, with love and purpose and intention and knowledge from the very foundation of the universe. And Christmas is the confirmation of it in real time of the eternal truth that Christmas is coming. It has been declared for thousands of years when parents whispered that in their children's ear. And it will be and it has been completed in the coming of Jesus Christ in the form of a helpless child who himself received that promise whispered in his ears. Think about that. Amen. Questions or talk?